are um, in our last week of a three-week mini-series. Yeah? Good call. Thank you, Deborah. There is Sunday school today. Uh, follow Deborah if you want to go up with her and have a delicious snack. Everyone leaves. Of course everyone wants a snack. I want a snack. <laughs> All right. There's also a nursery upstairs. It's like the one room in our church with AC. So we are uh, in our last week of a three-week mini-series that we've been going through on spiritual formation uh, entitled, Who Are You Becoming? And if this is the first message that you're joining uh, in this series, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one and two online, uh, either on our YouTube page or on our audio uh, through our, our church webpage. But as a quick recap of where we've been the last two weeks, we've been talking about our goal in spiritual formation, which is to become more and more like Jesus. As disciples, or in modern terms, as apprentices of Jesus, we want to learn from him so that we can become more like him. And when it comes to our transformation, we explore that God has a part to play and we have a part to play. But we've been wrestling with this question, why is change so hard? Like, why is it that I can know and believe all the right stuff and yet not experience change in my day-to-day life? We experience a gap, right, or an inconsistency between what we know and believe to be true and what we do. And... Why do we experience this gap? Why do we experience this kind of inconsistency? Well, we concluded it's because information alone does not lead to transformation, right? We can't reason our way to Christ-likeness. We can't think our way to holiness. And when it comes to being an apprentice of Jesus and becoming more like him, yes, training our minds to be filled with truth-filled information, with good teaching, good theology, Bible, and other good information is absolutely essential to Um, our discipleship to our spiritual formation, but just as important as training our minds to become Christ-like is training our hearts, wants, and desires, and loves uh, to be calibrated to the things of God. James K.A. Smith, he says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. We, who we are becoming, is driven in part by how we think, right, and what we believe, but even more so, arguably, who we are becoming is driven by our hearts, wants, and loves. Our hearts, uh, last week we explored, functions very much like Captain Jack Sparrow's compass from uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. His compass doesn't point him to magnetic north, right? It points him to whatever he wants most, which in that case is treasure. And I love that image because Jesus teaches us that this is exactly how our hearts work. He says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we ask the question, well, if that's true, what if if I don't love what I think I do? And if it's true that we are what we love, then what if I'm not the person that I think I am? See, as Christians, we know in our minds what we ought to love, what we ought to want, what we ought to worship, 
But Jesus says that what we really love and want and worship is actually revealed by our hearts. This is why when Jesus' first disciples wanted to follow him, he didn't vet them with an intellectual question. He didn't say, okay, tell me everything you know about the Bible. Tell me everything you believe about who I am. Some of that came later, but he did not start with those questions. He started with a heart question. What do you want in John chapter 1? And interestingly, if you skip to the end of the Gospel of John, just before Jesus returns to be with his Father in heaven, he also ends by asking his disciple Peter another heart question. Not once, not twice, but three times he asked Peter, do you love me? If it's true of us that we want to become more like Jesus, we need to take a deep, honest look at what our hearts wants and our loves really are because those are the things that are shaping you and I into the person that we are or, or who we're becoming. And you might ask, well, how does that work? How do our wants and loves and our hearts shape us into who we are? Track me with me here for a little bit. The Bible seems to teach us that love is a virtue. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. And virtues are habits. And our habits either draw us closer to Jesus or they pull us away. Um, this is a flow graph sometimes used in uh, psychology that I think speaks volumes to our topic today. It goes like this. Our daily choices form habits. And our habits can either become virtues or vices, and the combination of our virtues and vices form our character, i.e. the person that you are becoming, the person that I'm becoming. All of that is driven in part by our rational mind, don't dismiss that, but also by our heart's desires. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. And so we ask, is our heart really after Jesus? Or has it been trained to want and love and pursue lesser things, rival gods, false idols, different visions of the good life, right? The human heart is always after, restlessly trying to find the good life. What will ultimately satisfy me? What will ultimately make me happy? Jesus has a vision of the good life on offer, but the trifecta of the world, our own deceitful desires, and the devil are all trying to offer us alternative rival visions of what the good life really is. We talked about that in, in some detail last week. I love this quote from a fourth century Christian and theologian named Augustine. And he said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Right? Our heart is restlessly trying to look, what is the good life? And he discovered it's going to continue to be restless until it finds its resting place in God. Who you are becoming is driven by your heart's desires, and those desires become habits in your life. And again, when we're talking about habits, we're not talking about which order you brush your teeth in or which sock you put on first in the morning. Those aren't really habits. Those are just routines we do. Habits, as we define them, are the things we do that have become second nature to us that are also doing something to us. 
They are shaping us in some form. And so our homework last week was to do a habit audit, to take an inventory of all the things you devote yourself to on a daily basis. Okay, how often do I go out for coffee? What do I spend my mornings on? After work, what, what are my hobbies? How much time do I spend on my phone? How much money do I give to entertainment? And so I encourage you to just write down what are the things that you devote energy, time, or money on regularly? And then to ask the simple question, what are those things doing to me? And if you didn't get a chance to do that last week, I printed off a few extra copies of that. I would encourage you to take it home and do it this week. It's a really um, meaningful exercise and it gives you a picture of where you're at. Are the things that I devote myself to directing my loves to God and making me more Christ-like or are they pulling me away from God and causing some kind of a spiritual deformation? And maybe you found uh, some of your habits that you need to devote less time or energy and money on. Hopefully you also identified some that you're like, these are good. I need to figure out ways to pour more into these. And then maybe you found some that, if you're brutally honest, they're just not doing anything good for you and they just need to go. And so today, our main question is really this. How then do we change? Okay, if I've identified that in my mind and my heart, they're not in sync, there's this, there's this big gap between what I know and believe and what my life actually looks like, how do I change? Or if I identified that my heart has been making good things into ultimate things, that's the definition of an idol, right? Good gifts, but we kind of make them our God, where we pour too much time and energy and dependence on. How do I change? Or if my habits revealed that there are certain patterns in my life that are just not making me Christ-like, how do I change? John Mark Comer says that usually the problem is not that people don't want to change. Most of us want to change. The problem is that we don't always know how. And listen, I am in this with you. The reason I'm teaching this series is not at all to preach down at you or to pretend like I've got it all figured out. No, the reason I'm sharing these messages is because, like, wow, the Spirit has been um, using these two resources by James K. Smith and John Mark Comer to really confront some things in my own life, to really do some work. And so I'm in the process with you, inviting you uh, to join me on this journey or dragging you along with me. So how do we change? Well, let's open up our Bibles, if you have them with you, to Galatians chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it'll also be up here, I believe. And it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to um, a Christian community that had become deeply divisive over a theological issue. Not that any of us have any experience of that, right? <laughs> Being sarcastic. He's talking to real people who have divisive issues. But I think what he gets at is so applicable to what we're exploring in our spiritual formation. This is what he says in chapter 5, 16 to 25. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. 
They are in conflict with each other so that, they, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful uh, nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The word of the Lord. As you look over that list of the fruit of the Spirit, who of you thinks, let's be honest, I need me some more of that? <laughs> yeah? Good. I'm not, I'm not alone here. Um, I really found uh, Bible scholar Tim Mackey's teaching on this particular passage really helpful. I'll be drawing on it uh, in these next examples here. He says that this is a really neat passage because it gives us a window into what it looks like when somebody is transformed and becomes more like Jesus. This is a window of what that looks like, an increase in love, in joy, in peace, in perseverance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, as you look at that list, how many of you just feel like you are crushing it in all nine of those areas? You're like, I got that down pat, all nine of them every day. No? No? Me neither. Like, I feel like I look at that list and I sometimes get discouraged. I'm like, man, I just, I just don't measure up. Like, I've been a Christian for the better part of my life. And okay, maybe on a given day, I'm doing okay in one or two of those, right? But man, do I have a long way to go. Anybody else with me on that? Yeah? Yeah, I have a long way to go as I look at that list. To make matters worse, we look at this and we think, okay, so here's nine different things that could grow in my life. And maybe you're doing okay in one or two of those. And you're like, okay, right? And you might think like, okay, you have some of those and maybe another person has some of the other ones, like different fruits for different people. But here's where it gets even worse. Timaki says, no, it's not nine different fruits of the Spirit. It's the one fruit of the Spirit. And this is what it looks like from nine different angles. In other words, he says, if you have self-control, but you lack love, it doesn't really matter. All of them together is the one fruit of the Spirit. And if you're anything like me, then this passage can easily become discouraging, making us feel like we are just not really good Christians, and it makes us want to give up and throw in the towel. 
But I think that we can get discouraged not because this passage is discouraging, but because we have a tendency to read it wrong. See, many people, including myself for the longest time, have the tendency to read this passage as a list of commandments. If you're a true Christian, then be more joyful, okay? If you're a Christian, then be more patient. Try harder. But look at verse 22 again. Is this a commandment? Is it a commandment? No. It's a truth statement of what happens in the life of a person who belongs to Christ. In fact, the only commandments in this passage happen up in verse 16 and then down in verse 25. Verse 16 says, live by the Spirit. Verse 25 says, walk in step with the Spirit. Those are the only two commandments, just simply worded slightly differently, in this passage. And notice Paul is using a metaphor here. Uh, Tim Mackey says, anytime you come across a metaphor, it should cause you to pause, to think, okay, what am I supposed to get? What image am I supposed to get in my mind when I come across a metaphor? What are the layers here? Well, it's a metaphor about fruit, right? It's a gardening metaphor. Any gardeners in the room? Some of us laugh and like, kind of, we're trying. Deborah's upstairs. I've seen her garden bed. She's got it figured out. But gardeners, um, like we kind of got into it in the last number of years since moving here and we're like, we're going to have an awesome garden. I built these garden boxes and planted some trees and I realized like there's insects and blight and rabbits and like, I'm like, well, gardening is hard work, isn't it? Yeah, like if you want a good fruitful garden, it requires some serious work. But gardeners, can you really say, let's say you get a good year and you get a great tomato plant or whatever it is, can you really say that you grew that tomato? Like, can, did you cause it to grow? No. No, we don't cause our garden to grow. Um, like, you didn't create the sun, right? You didn't figure out how photosynthesis works, or control that even. You didn't come up with the genetic makeup of the seeds that you have in your garden. Those are the things that actually make a plant grow, and those are all things that are outside of our control. So you don't actually make the plants grow. Are we tracking? But that doesn't mean that your role as a gardener isn't critically important. It's vital. Um, when we first moved to Nelson, um, I was always amazed at our neighbor's garden. It was this sweet old Italian man by the name of Tony. Um, he passed away a couple years ago, sadly, already. But seriously, I thought Tony was a garden wizard. Like, his raspberries, I kid you not, they were the size of our cherry tomatoes, right? And his tomatoes were just the reddest, juiciest tomatoes I'd ever seen. Like, I'd want to go up to them and be like, are these real? And I mean, we, had, we have raspberries and tomatoes too, and they were, they were okay, you know, but they were absolutely nothing in comparison to Tony's. And I'd always ask him, like, Tony, how in the world does your garden produce such amazing fruit? And he always just smiled, and he'd throw up his hands, and in a really heavy Italian accent, he'd say, I don't know, I don't know. 
you want some tomatoes? And then he'd give me some of his delicious tomatoes and his raspberries that were the size of my tomatoes. Tony didn't make his garden grow any more than I did. We had the same amount of sunlight and rain, like we're literally next to each other. But why were his raspberries and his tomatoes so much better and bigger and juicier than mine? Well, here is the difference. Since he wouldn't tell me, I just started observing. I'm a little binocular, just like a spy on my back deck, even though he's like five feet away. Tony was consistently out there every morning and every evening, tending to his garden, just working to make his garden an environment where good growth could happen. And we were, well, frankly not. He was weeding, he had trellises, he knew when to water and how much, he added compost and mulch to his garden, he watched for pests and insects so that they wouldn't become a problem. He was consistently making sure that his garden environment was hospitable where good growth could happen. And we were a little bit more like weekend warriors. I mean, fair enough, different stage of life, right? But what happens to a garden when it gets completely neglected? Like, are you going to get fruit? You might have the odd tomato or the odd raspberry, right, that just survives the neglect. Um, But it's going to be taken over by weeds, right? The blight will come in, insects will come in, the soil will lose its, uh, its nutrition or its... Um, humidity, and it's not going to be the same. And the same is true when it comes to the Spirit's transformative work in our life. You can't make the fruit of the Spirit grow in your life. That's beyond your control. That is the work of the Spirit in our lives, and that is really, really encouraging. See, when you become a Christian and you acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, something happens in that moment. There's a a change that happens. You become a child of God. That only happens once. You can't undo that. The New Testament says that in our baptism, we are essentially marked or stamped as belonging to God. This one belongs to me. This one belongs to me. This is my child. And we can't undo that. That is a free gift. And when we become a Christian, God puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. And that is the Spirit who is causing you to become more like Jesus by producing this good fruit in your life. It is happening in your life if you are a Christian. It's happening. Rest assured in that promise of Scripture the same spirit that spoke creation itself into being, that is the power God has gifted you if you are a child of God. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same spirit transforming you and producing good fruit in your life. Your role and my role, as Tim Mackey says, is learning to play the role of a gardener in this metaphor. We don't make the fruit of the Spirit grow in us, but we can decide how much influence we allow the Spirit to have in our life. We can hinder that fruit from growing or we can promote it. So how do we change? Well, if it's true that our habits have shaped us into the person we are today, 
then it's by learning new habits that we change and become more like Jesus. Psychology recognizes this too. If you want to change by getting rid of a negative habit in your life, you won't, you won't really be able to do it by just quitting that habit. You need to replace that habit with a new life-giving one. Carrie, am, am I on the right track there? Yeah, okay. Anytime I like refer to psychology, I'm like, I gotta make sure I'm, I've got this figured out. At least I'm in the right ballpark. So what are some of the habits we can adopt to help us be good gardeners? and to help us create that hospitable environment where the fruit of the Spirit can grow and thrive. Well, Christians call them the spiritual disciplines. And a working definition of the spiritual disciplines, again, this comes from uh, John Mark Comer's website, is this. Spiritual disciplines are practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus. Okay, as you read through the Gospels, you will start to pick up some of these practices that Jesus did that create a time and space for us to access the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and in doing so, be transformed from the inside out. There's not really an exhaustive uh, list of what these practices are, but here are some of the core spiritual practices we find in the life of Jesus or the early Christians and this graph is, is also from practicingtheway.org. Sorry if you need to squint a little bit. We have on, on the left side, silence and solitude, fasting, simple living, Bible reading, or anything to do with Bible, meditation, Bible study, devotions, prayer, secrecy, which basically just means doing good things for others and not telling them about it or posting about it. Okay, those are all the practices we tend to kind of do more alone. And then over here on this side, we, we have the spiritual practices that we do either with or in community. Sabbath keeping or rest. Generosity. Practicing acts of justice. Sharing meals with one another. Communion. Gathering together to worship. Good job, we're doing that right now. And again, there are many others, but this is kind of a core list, and we're all drawn to particular practices on here. Like introverts like me, we're all gonna be on this side of that graph, and extroverts, you guys are all partying and hanging out on this side of the graph, but we need both. We need both. None of these practices or disciplines are goals in and of themselves. So like coming to church, the point of coming to church is not come to church, check, did it, right? The point of these practices, think of them as gardening tools that help you create an environment in your life to be with Jesus, to hang out with him, to allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow and transform you. But if you look at this, this graph and this big long list, some of you, this can look and seem pretty overwhelming. Some of you might think, these practices look great and I really want to change but my life is maybe a bit of a mess or I'm just not good at adopting new habits or I'm just so far from being able to adopt all of that. This just seems so unattainable for where I'm currently at. And if that's you, let me just give you one more metaphor, uh, also from these resources from John Mark Comer and then we're gonna land the plane, okay? How does one become a marathon runner? 
Is it by trying really hard or is it by training consistently? And you might say, well, what's the difference here? Tomato, tomato, right? No, they're actually very different. Um, picture someone, picture someone in maybe their mid-40s who has had a completely sedentary life and a lifestyle of eating junk food and fast food and being a couch potato. Like they're really, really good at watching Netflix and playing video games, but that's about it. Their choices have led to their habits, which have shaped them quite, <laughs> quite literally into the type of person they are now the furthest thing possible from a marathon runner. So how does someone like that become a marathon runner? Is that even possible? Like, like, is that even possible? Like, if that person were to be inspired to change, he's like, I watched a Netflix series on running, I gotta, I gotta start this. And they get up off their couch, and they wipe off their Cheeto dust, right? And they go down to the store and they buy a pair of hefty new running shoes and they sign up for the Okanagan Marathon and they show up there tomorrow. New shoelaces are tied up. They got their gym shorts on from high school still. They have their AirPods in and they're blasting chariots of fire. You know, da 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 da. They're like, yeah, I'm ready for this. And the air horn blows. Do you think that person is going to finish that marathon by trying really, really hard and by cranking the volume up more? No. No, that person is going to get maybe past the starting line, maybe 100 yards, maybe 200, and fall over and die. Okay? Maybe that's a little extreme. Maybe, I'm sorry, maybe they won't die. They'll just, they'll just be done. They'll be pulled off the side. I had a baby cry. I'm sorry. They won't die. They just won't, will not be able to make it by trying really hard. No, but that same person can become the type of person who can run that Okanagan Marathon by training consistently, by simply starting where they're at. So for someone like that, they start by getting off the couch and going for a five-minute walk every other day, and they do that for two weeks because that's where they're at. Then they can up it to a five-minute walk every day. Two weeks after that, it becomes a 10-minute walk. Two weeks after that, they can add a two-minute jog to that walk. And in the same way, they make small, consistent changes to their diet. For someone like that, it's like, okay, I drink 24 cans of pop a week. Let's do the math. If I take one of them out and replace it with a veggie smoothie, ah, that's where they got to start. Right? Or maybe they say, I have a habit of just eating fast food. Like I live around the corner from A&W. Maybe if I start replacing one burgers and fries for a salad a week, just once a week. Okay, they start where they're at and they start making these small, consistent changes. That person, maybe not in a day or two or even a few months, but over time can become the type of person who can run a marathon. Um, last week, I actually had a chat about this with uh, a friend who's a pastor at the Covenant Church in Creston, in um, Creston Erickson Covenant Church. He's, his name is Tom Greentree, and he just ran his very first ultra marathon yesterday, 58 kilometers. 
And so I asked him about it at, at the harbor last week a little bit and this week. See, I thought maybe Tom had been a runner his entire life, but he told me that he has never, ever run any kind of official race before, not a 3K, not a 5K, nothing. And he told me, you want to know what's true? I couldn't run a single mile three years ago. So I asked him, Tom, what is your secret? How did you go from not even being able to run a mile to doing an ultramarathon as your first official run? And he did it. He posted about it yesterday. And here's his response, and I quote him. He gave me some permission, I think. He said, start wherever you are and simply be consistent and slowly increase. Think months and even years, not days. Again, he said, I couldn't run a mile three years ago, and now I can run to the top of mountains. But that came slowly. And as you overcome one limit, you gain more confidence to conquer more. And I love that conversation because that, those are the same principles that apply to our apprenticeship to Jesus. Don't white-knuckle it and just try really hard. Let's learn how to train consistently. Don't start where you think you should be at. Don't start where somebody else is at. Start where you're at, small, slowly, and simply learn that habit of consistency and over time, add to it. So this week's practice is called a micro-habit swap. Um, you're invited to look over your habit audit you did last week again. And again, if you haven't done it, I invite you to take a copy and try it out this week. Carve out some time to figure out what are your patterns, what are your rhythms and routines and habits that you devote yourself on a given day, on a given week. The habit audit gives you a picture of where you're at, or if we want to go back to Paul's metaphor, it gives you a little bit of a picture of the condition of your, your garden, so to speak. So this week's practice is to look at the habits that need to change in your life and make micro-habit swaps. What do I mean by that? Well, it might look like something like this. Like, let's say you realized you have a habit of mindlessly scrolling through social media for 30 minutes before bedtime. Not that, I, not that I've ever struggled with that, but may, maybe you have, right? If you, if you have that habit of mindlessly just scrolling through social media before bed for 30 minutes, a micro-habit swap would be you limit it to maybe 15 minutes and then swap the other 15 minutes to read your Bible. Maybe it's just one psalm Maybe you start to slowly work through the Gospels, just one chapter at a time, and then go to bed. Give God the last days, or sorry, the last thoughts of your day, and just watch that microhabit start to transform you. Or maybe you have the terrible habit of looking at your phone and checking all of your notifications the moment you wake up in the morning. I, I've been the worst at this because my alarm is on my phone, and then it goes ding, 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 ding. Of course, you reach and you start to check what's all on your notifications. But what if instead of checking your notifications first thing in the morning, you just took two minutes and simply practiced silence and solitude before God? Like, sit up, take a deep breath, and simply become aware of God's presence just for two minutes. Maybe you try a breath prayer. This has been a game changer for me. All I do is just say, Jesus, here I am. Or, Holy Spirit, fill me today. 
I don't get it right every day, but when I do that practice, it is a game changer. I have noticed I'm less anxious, I'm less stressed, I have more peace. Or maybe you stress about money and your habits reveal that, oh, maybe I have the tendency to use everything that I earn on myself and you want to change that as a follower of Jesus. Then here's your micro habit swap. Maybe once a week when you go buy coffee for yourself, pay for the person behind you or tip your barista extra generously. Just try that once a week. And if that's too much, try it once a month, 12 times a year, and see where that goes. A small micro habit of practicing generosity. Okay, and for some of you, you have a habit that you don't just need a little micro shift. Like you need, a, you need an overhaul. You, like this is a weed in your garden. It is a pest or an insect that is decimating the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And that habit needs to be pulled out. There needs to be a fence around so that pest cannot get in. Call up a friend, give me a shout, find some accountability and say, hey, can you help me pull out this weed in my garden? Can you help me build a fence around this pest? Because it is killing my walk with the Lord. Becoming more like Jesus and becoming the type of person whose life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit does not come overnight, at least not for most of us. It's a lifetime of walking with Jesus and keeping in step with the Spirit. Weeds and pests and insects will always be a battle for a gardener. You can't avoid that, but you don't have to let that destroy your garden. You don't have to let them take over. Change doesn't come about by just white-knuckling it and trying super hard. It's by training consistently one small micro-habit at a time, retraining our hearts to be directed toward God and to loving our neighbor. And the best news is, and I'll close with this, I'm sorry I've been a little long-winded today. Here's the best news. You are not alone. You have the Spirit of God doing the most critical work in your life. You have a gentle mentor in Jesus and a loving Father who enjoys watching you grow. We have a role to play too, though. St. Augustine, he had this great quote about this transformational work. He said, without God, we cannot, but without us, he will not. Transformation and becoming Christ-like is a partnership. Amen. Let's pray.